Hey, I'm Lynn Rogala. And I'm Allie Diliberto, and we are coming to you from the ladies' room. So we can talk about removing stupid, frustrating, and toxic shit from the world in a way that's not prim enough for the dinner table. Welcome back to the ladies' room. Wow, you sounded really excited. Is that better than last week when I was like, la, 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 la. How far is it from Arizona to you? I mean, from me to you right now in the world. I, I don't know. I'm not good at, at that kind of stuff. <sighs> Lynn, fine. I don't it's know, like only, 12, 12 hours? It's only a 45, oh, it's an hour and 40 minute flight. I have no idea, but okay, continue. That was kind of a weird scroll. <laughs> You know, we're in how far you are away from me. I knew how far you were away from me when I lived in Colorado. And now I just got worried about how far away you are from me. I just wondered, like, you know, that we hung up the phone and went into the ladies room, right? We're not just <laughs> still on yes, the phone. I'm sorry. Let's continue talking about armpits that smell like meat. <laughs> no, I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> All right, fine. I'm um, sitting on the couch because fat baby's on me, which is maybe not great. So hopefully you'll inspire me to stand up soon. I'm also sitting, but I might stand up soon. Okay. I, might I promised be, you. I might fall asleep shortly. Okay. You're going to tell me the crow story. Yes. But before I do, just so people know whether or not they want to, you, you maybe stay around, maybe hang up right now. We're going to talk about necessary endings, which sounds very fancy, but really oh. is kind of like when you fuck, tell people to fuck off. wow we could write a sequel like there's a book called necessary endings and then we could write the sequel from the ladies room which is called fuck off asshole (laughs) it could be called fuck off and the and patriarchy stress disorder i told you that you're not allowed to have an opinion on that anymore from a place of ignorance that wasn't even an opinion i just thought it would be funny like it could be like the version of dealing with male society and telling yeah. it to fuck off Burn Lynn and down. I made an agreement that I'm not allowed to say anything about patriarchy stress disorder book until I read it and I told her she knows I'm not about to read it so she said she'll send me the audiobook yeah I when I said read it I meant listen to the audio but no the thing that I can't the, one of the things I cannot abide is uneducated opinions like it's perfect. I just fine. don't like the title. That's all. That's but whatever, whatever. Like there's plenty of people walking through the world with uneducated opinions, and it, my best friend can't be one of those people because I can't tolerate it. What about Fat Baby? Fat Baby, every every opinion that he has is automatically educated because he <laughs> downloads directly from source. <laughs> that might be true. I'm so entertained. Like one of my big goals in life for like the last forever many years of my life has been to get my ass out of bed early in the morning, every morning. And now that I work most mornings for even just like a couple hours at my little Starbucks cafe job, I have to get up, but now it's starting to become routine, but it's reinforced because today days like today where I have the day off, fat baby has somehow connected. The alarm goes off. I have to run lay on my mom and then purr really loud and be totally adorable so then I wake up and roll over and pet him and then it works pretty well I'm going to tell you something that might move you to tears but first I want to say another tactic 
if you're a person who wants to get up early in the morning is to get a cat and start feeding it wet food when you first wake up, because the cat will move your wake up time earlier and earlier and earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I used to have cats and I quit feeding them wet food because I got tired of being woken up two hours before my alarm because they were like, Hey, how about some wet food, bitch? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think my mom will allow me to feed fat baby wet food, but he's gonna, but I do like that. He's trained. But like this morning, John had the alarm go off early. But even when it doesn't go off, like at some point somebody goes to the bathroom and Max like, it's fat baby time. And then he's pretty consistent about getting attention until you wake up later, eventually leave the house and give him a treat. So here's the sweet thing that might make you cry. One of the reasons cats purr on us is to heal us. Oh, I'm not going to cry. When he comes and purrs on you, he's healing. He's trying to heal you make you feel better. I once was in a spa at some really fancy expensive place and did they purr on you? Vegas? <clears throat> no. But it was in like one of those like waiting rooms that are, you know, you spend like hours in. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. there were these in I think they were Indian women and they were telling about this other woman in their circle who like did some kind of thing with people's feet. And then like coughed out all this black stuff after she like touched their feet. Like she like drew all this stuff out of them and then would like open her mouth and like chuck out all this gross stuff. Yeah. Just like in the movie, the green mile. Yeah. It's totally like that. Except Mm -hmm. not flies and stuff, but yeah. All right. Well, maybe that's why fat baby's so fat. Because why? When he's absorbing all my unhappiness. No, he's purring to heal you, heal you from your sadness. Well, he purrs a lot. It's been a long year. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Tell the cat laptop story because I'm very interested in this and I'm going to implement it as an experiment this week and then we'll, we'll report. Yes. Okay. So I sent you a story from Instagram that you didn't get to watch before it died. And that made me really sad. But the person said, one of the reasons cats get into our space when we're working on the computer is because they want to mirror us, like imitate us. And so he got his cat, this little tiny cat laptop on the suggestion of the internet. You know, the internet has all the best ideas and he put it down and the cat started just like laying on that laptop next to him instead of getting on his keyboard. The cat's like, okay, you have yours. I have mine instead of the little cat laptop. Um, yes. And I think it's adorable and it might work, but you did already caveat it. I caveated it. How did I do? Oh, because, because fat baby particularly loves to just be held. I mean, he's a cat who likes to be carried around in a baby carrier. So he might just be getting in your face because he wants you to hold him. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. But in which case, I'm very happy that it's snowing today. I thought it was going to stop snowing because um, we had a little break in the snow, but now there's like giant flurries and it's almost snowed. Not like it's almost not snowed at all um, in the last like, you know, well, since I moved to Salt Lake, which I've been feeling kind of robbed because I freaking love snow and I didn't know it was never going to snow here. Um, yeah, I like snowy days when I don't have to go anywhere. No, I love the snow all the time. It was supposed to rain today. It was supposed to be, quote, cold and rainy, meaning like high of 50. Um, 
And so we have family visiting and the plan was to hang out in the house all day, but it looks like it's not going to rain and it's going to be windy instead. And that sucks. Arizona has this kind of wind that I call anxiety wind. It's very weird. I've never experienced it anywhere else. Like it's, it's interesting because everyone I know who lives in Tucson, well, not everyone, some people are, that doesn't bother them. But if you talk about it on, like I post once on Facebook, like to my friends up North, like whenever we make fun of the snow and then you say it's hot down there in the summer, we don't care. That's not a burn. You don't understand. We don't like that. What you should say instead is, well, at least our wind, it doesn't make you anxious and make people yell at it because that really is a very upsetting weather pattern that we have. Like people literally will turn and scream into the wind. It's that like frustrating and upsetting. So I think we're going to have a windy day like that. It's the worst, very anxious and unsettling. It's not regular wind. It's anxiety wind. Anxiety wind. Well, you have anxiety wind, which is terrible. And it's snowing here, which is making me happy. And John's gone today to like take his snakes and reptiles from the place he works, like to someplace that's three hours away. And over Super Bowl weekend, he did the same thing and had to stay overnight in Wyoming and a Super 8 or something because I don't think regular hotels will let you have, like, I can't imagine the Hilton's going to be like, no problem, just bring that 12-foot snake and a caiman and a tarantula and, like, some birds and some shit here. So he One was more like, reason to stay at fancy hotels and not cheap motels. <laughs> right? I mean, they had to get, like, pre-approval and all this stuff. But um, John, oh, the Ritz Carlton, like, not letting a snake in the front door. Right, that's not happening. I'll I mean, I guess if, the Ritz Carlton, if you paid enough money, you could. I was going to say, like, if Beyonce rolls in with her snake, I'm sure they would take it. Snake have his own room and stuff. Yeah, right. Like special snake had special snake quarters. So I snake think John, John kept sending me pictures of like this. Like, first of all, he has some kind of blankets that like. I don't know where he got them from, but like one had a picture of a pot leaf on it and he has it like spread across the bed in case the snake poops or something. But then he has this 12 foot snake, like, and he's like cuddling with it. And I'm like, and he's as happy as he possibly could be. And it's not good. So. Yeah. I don't understand your husband at all. I did think the little crocodile or alligator, whatever it was in the bathtub was adorable. That's marginally cute, but not something I want in my, a picture of that is cute. Having it in my (laughs) hotel room, not. I was like, can you bring that over to our house and let it play in our bathtub and see what fat baby thinks? It might bite fat baby. Why would you do that to fat baby? Fat baby. It would be stuck in the bathtub. Fat baby would not get bit by the alligator. He's way too smart. All right. Maybe you just get him a laptop instead of an alligator. (laughs) We'll start with the laptop and then we'll see about visiting the alligator. We got you two new toys. One is a laptop and one is a death machine. I mean, I know we have to hear about the crow story, but we, that alligator is a pretty freaking awesome segue into um, the conversation that we're going to have today. Well, I can make the crow thing very brief. It's more just an update. So we we were having, we have family in town. And so we've been eating like a lot of takeout and stuff. We're not cooking as much because so many people, and we had a, a big Mexican catering feast for my birthday. And so we had a lot of leftovers. 
So I've been just like pulling what's in the fridge, putting it out, trying to get the teenagers to eat green things. And I had some containers of raspberries and I put them out and Riley's like, oh, these are kind of moldy on the bottom. The top ones were fine, but the bottom ones were moldy. So I was going to throw them in the trash. And then Bob just like, no, give them to me. I'll feed them to the rabbits. And I was like, oh, maybe my crow future friend, Raven more likely, because there's a giant Raven is really the one I have my eye on would like them. So I went outside in front in my courtyard where I have seen the Raven before there's like a fountain birdbath type thing. So I took some raspberries, like eight or 10 raspberries. I kind of sprinkled them around inside the bowl of the fountain. It's empty. It doesn't have any water in it. And I went out there yesterday and none of them were eaten, but one was on the ground. I'm like, so something came and took one and put it on the ground. I'm like, dude, this is hurting my feelings because those are whole food raspberries. Those are good raspberries. Those weren't the moldy ones. I put them out there and none of them have been eaten. So I took them all out of the bowl and scattered them all over the floor. I can see outside. Not a single one has been eaten. So it's very upsetting. And yesterday we saw a bunny out in that same courtyard. So I thought, well, worst case, I can put them on the ground and then maybe a bunny will find them. But so far, no takers on the raspberries, which is kind of insane. They've been out there for two days. And you thought you were going to get a crow out of this? I thought it would be a good start, like a demonstration of the value of my friendship that I put fresh fruit outside for them to eat. Yes. But no, not, none, no birds have eaten them. Not even the million, like the, the cardinals are out here and doves and quail. Nothing, nothing has eaten the raspberries. It's very confusing. But what's most confusing is the one that was on the ground. Something took the time to get it out of the fountain, throw it on the ground, but not eat it. Um, that's ridiculous. I know. Kind of hurt my feelings. But I remain. Well, undeterred. do you have any reason to believe that crows are especially into raspberries? They like fruit in general. All right. Fruit, seeds. I don't really want to give them bread. Bread, in spite of what we've been taught all of our lives, bread is not great for birds. Unless it's like, like a sprouted Ezekiel type bread with lots of grain in it. Um, processed bread is not very good. Image of you making bread for, for your crow. You know, <laughs> here's my full disclosure. Here's where some worlds collide. You know how I'm all about mashups and hacks, right? Uh-huh. Here's some worlds colliding. You know, I love Bunny, the talking dog. Um, who the other day, by the way, segue, she wasn't eating her dinner. And she kept asking to go outside and play. And her mom's like, you have to eat your dinner first. And they just kept going back and forth. And then finally she said, mom, sound subtle, which is how she tells people to shut up, (laughs) which was very (laughs) good. But anyway, so I love them. And they have a sponsorship with this freeze dried dog food. So I see ads for the freeze dried dog food all the time that she feeds them. And I was thinking of buying a package of the freeze dried dog food because Ravens do love dog food. It's like really meaty. They're omnivores. So they'll eat just about anything. And I thought, well, freeze-dried dog food would be pretty good because it wouldn't rot or, you know, get yucky out as much. Just thinking of maybe buying some of that brand of dog food just to try to make friends with the crows and ravens. Of course, of course you are. All right. Yeah. I approve. Go right ahead. I'm going to. you'll attract, but all right. Yeah. I, I am. Uh, I, we were talking to the girls last night and, um, so my niece is here too, and she and Riley are the same age. So we have two 13-year-old girls doing the amount of giggling that they do when they're together. They never see each other. And we were talking about like hair coloring and gray hair. And I said, you know, I just want to like go gray and get a bunch of twigs and then a staff and a robe. And then, then I for sure will attract a raven. 
<laughs> it will land on my staff Maleficent style and we will walk around the neighborhood. Awesome. Oh no. <laughs> and you'll be carrying crystals in your other pocket. You know I will. <laughs> we might never be able to spend physical time together again, Lynn. That's that's your loss because uh, it's better come magic visit around me before you get a crow. Okay. Why don't you just get a crow? Can't you get one like hatched at the farm I, store? Like a I don't want one as a pet. That? I don't want one as a pet. I want one as a friend. I don't know how to make this distinction for you. I know, but you're into hacks. So I feel like <laughs> you started out, you know, you can free it. It doesn't have to be in a cage. And then it's it'll like, just it'd be like, you. I said, you know, I really wish I had someone in Tucson to go to coffee with. And you'd be like, why don't you just kidnap someone and keep them in the basement and make them go to coffee? Whenever you want? You're the worst. <laughs> What's the point of you? <laughs> uh, okay. Right. No segue so, necessary. Necessary. Alligators ending. in the bathtub. Alligators okay. in the bathtub. We all are right. going to pause. Well, someday we're going to come back to talking about women and work now that we spent all that time last week talking about the framework men and women in entrepreneurship will resume it. But I want to talk about this week about necessary endings, as Lynn said, but that segue of the alligator in the bathtub is kind of the perfect segue because when I was a kid, I started listening to Dr. Laura when I was like, I don't know, 10, because I'm super weird. Do you, do you, have you ever listened to her? You know who this is, right? I don't know if I have ever listened to her, but I know who she is. Okay. Well, give your description of Dr. Laura. My description of Dr. Laura, um, a fake psychologist who she's kind a of real psychologist. Like <laughs> she's actually a real psychologist. I know she is. She's, but she had like a radio show where she just dispensed advice, and her whole thing was like, do the right thing. Like that was the whole kind of what it boiled down to. But she used to have, she used to say regularly. And if you pet an alligator, eventually it's going to bite you. And that is kind of the heart of necessary endings. Like sometimes like, well, necessary endings, it's, I mean, it's about ending relationships or jobs or things in your life that need to come to an end. And I, um, but that kind of reminds me because a lot of times the heart of it is like, not everybody's going to change not every and if you pet an alligator eventually it's going to bite you and then you're the dumbass who is petting an alligator Mm -hmm. which might be an allegory for my parenting journey just kidding (laughs) (laughs) we won't go there um, there's a lot of there's a lot of fables about that too like what's the one um the i think it's uh i think it's a it might be either rudyard kipling or an aesop story so it's either a just so story or an aesop's fable but um, about the, the scorpion who asks, I think, a fox to carry him across the river on his back. And yep. um, like halfway across the river, he stings him and the fox drowns. And he's like, why did you do that? I was helping you. He's like, you knew what I was when you picked me up. Yep. Although I think what's hard is you don't always know what you're picking up when you're picking it up, right? Like that's not always discernible. True. And I love the heart of, so I love this book, Necessary Endings, and I've probably listened to it maybe five times, at least every other year since I first listened to it. I find that a good listen to all the way through is extremely helpful. 
And it would have been super cool if I had done that right before we recorded this podcast, but I didn't. So we're just going to get whatever lives in Lynn in my brain about it. And I'll admit, I pulled up a four minute book summary of it to help me remember because it's been a long time since I listened to it. But the, the, the message of it has been coming up in my Oracle cards this week too. I keep pulling um, this card called house cleaning or clean house um, out of my new fancy deck. So it's, it's a good topic for now. So I'll find that page in my little book too. Okay. And then you can tell me what you're going to clean house on. So one of the key things I love about the book that I want to, even though that isn't what the heart of what I want to talk about is that he really defines that some people are evil. Like some people are foolish. Well, he talks a lot about wisdom, foolishness, and then evil. And so essentially like his premise is that when he talks about it and I love this and I think it's completely true. And I've used this in business and my personal life. I just think it's like such a good way to distinguish when you're actually dealing with what's happening in a relationship or in a business relation, like any, wherever there's something going on, it's been such a good measure. So the wise learn, are you breaking up with me? You better not be fucking. I was thinking about that when you brought up your Oracle cards saying about cleaning (laughs) house. I'm like, I already asked you how long while I'm depressed and grumpy, are you going to put up with us? And you basically said indefinitely. Yes. Because I owe you that in exchange, if nothing else, even if you don't, (laughs) even if you don't eat my raspberries, look, if you, if it helped you get you, get it out of your space. I think a lot of my stuff is literally in my physical space. No, I, I was, I was joking because You'd be out of your fucking mind to get rid of me. We're meant to be together. You as well. (laughs) I wasn't considered. It wasn't even a consideration. Don't worry. Um, Okay. So wise people learn with words. And what's hard is we all ditch a little tiny bit off into it. Right. But the, I, but especially when you're looking at how to have boundaries in a relationship, is this a relationship that going to work inside wisdom or is this a relationship where there's a lot of foolishness so someone wise will learn like don't touch that I don't want you to do x like those kinds of things like that's and they'll and they'll also learn from what they're observing like Lynn doesn't like when I do x like or when people do x like I I'm not going to do that because why would I right right so they're able to learn and that's, this is obviously like very simplified, but they just learn from, you know, like the verbal boundaries and from experience that's wisdom, right? Like yeah, and I think knowledge and action. I think it's worth mentioning that this author also wrote the boundaries book. Oh yeah. I mean, Henry Cloud and Townsend wrote the boundaries book and this guy, is, this is written by Townsend, right? Uh, no necessary endings is written by Henry Cloud. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, thanks for the correction. And it is I'm an sitting action. in front of Google. I'm not super smart today. I'm sitting straight <laughs> looking at a Google results page where it says Henry cloud is an American Christian self-help author who co-authored boundaries. When to say yes, how to say no to take control of your life in 1992, which sold 2 million copies and dot, dot, dot. And then a link to Wikipedia. Okay. <laughs> there you go. This is how I sound um, smart today. <laughs> Now I can't wait to hear what it says about Dr. I'm just kidding. Can you just imagine little Allie? My name was Andrew back then, but little Allie Andrew 
my parents were going through divorce. Like maybe it was a couple of years before the divorce actually happened. But like, I was listening to Dr. Laura on the radio at night thinking like, my parents don't have any idea what the fuck they're doing in the world. Clearly, <laughs> clearly this is, I mean, that was kind of how I rolled from the beginning of my life. But... <laughs> I can picture that so clearly. I can picture I that so clearly. <laughs> That's totally and, true. And let me throw out what I was doing at about the same age, <laughs> okay. a little younger, eight or nine. Um, I was planning and orchestrating a dinner party. My parents had just separated and I was orchestrating a dinner party, planning everything that I would cook to give them a, me- a meal on their anniversary to get them back together. Eight-year-old me Aww. doing that. <laughs> I know, Aww. isn't it sad? Don't you just want to reach back to our little girl selves and be like, you don't have to do this. This is not your Oh, no. I was like, obviously she was onto something. My parents did not know what they were doing. But it was not your responsibility. It shouldn't have been your responsibility. I mean, you're thinking, you have to remember, like, I'm the girl who in second grade stood up in the room and yelled, you don't know what you're talking about at my teacher when she was <laughs> teaching math. Like, you can't teach me. You don't know what you're, you don't know what you're doing. And she told my mom in parent teacher conferences that that was true, that she didn't know what she was doing, but I still wasn't allowed to do that. And that's so, so fucked. I, I just get so upset. <laughs> like people come, I've seen people, uh, we don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but I just want to say, I've seen people complain about quote, the new math and the way they're trying to teach oh. math is this really fun, intuitive way that everyone I know who's good at math, myself included, figured out how to do on their own as a kid in their head. And, but what they're doing is they're trying to like turn it into worksheets, this way of playing. It's like very playful way of manipulating stuff. They're trying to turn it into worksheets and then giving it to math teachers who don't understand math. And so of course it's a complete shit show. Um, (laughs) So rant over, I I could rant for a whole podcast on math education in the United States. It makes me cry. Anyway, continue. So you're realizing that your parents don't know what they're doing, obviously, (laughs) (laughs) they didn't know what they were doing but kind of the whole world but she gave me really like she's jewish and she wrote a book called like the 10 stupid things women do and the 10 stupid things men do and like she wrote a book about the ten commandments like i really like a lot of her philosophy and it really structured a lot of my own style and like my own decisions that fed into like later how i was going to parent or whatever but it was a good structure because I was missing some of those structures from my own life and I love wisdom. And I think a lot, for sure, there's a piece of what she does. that's just entertainment and whatever, but I think she loves wisdom and has a framework for evaluating, you know, what should be going on in the world. So anyway, I don't know why I just off into Dr. Laura, but oh yeah. Cause I was talking about wisdom anyway. So the um, back to foolishness. So people who are foolish. You say, don't touch my fat baby. And they reach out and touch the fat baby, right? Like they just can't leave. Like they don't learn based on what's said. They just keep doing whatever is happening in their world. People who have wisdom will adjust. And then with, so with foolish people, you have to, you can't use words. So then you have to use boundaries, physical, like that they become like anything from like, you can't call me, you can't do X. Like you have to, put something structural in place. Yeah. And then there's people who are evil <clears throat> and they're going to persist in whatever. And that's when you need guns and lawyers, essentially. Like that's why we need police. That's why you need whatever. <clears throat> and I think there's also 
for sure, like he doesn't talk about this, but then there's also, of course, mental illness and that falls in some combination of foolishness and, you know, whatever you need guns and lawyers for the yeah, same types say, of things, but the motivation might be different. Yeah. I was going to say guns and lawyers implies always that there's violence, but there could also be just some protection there too. Like, um, you know, co- confinement doesn't necessarily have to be a gun you know, like, like you're saying about mental illness, um, you know, we don't, right. Because don't I don't wanna... know if I would ditch off into mental illness being, um, evil. Like, I think that they're like, then there's mental illness. Like my mentor, one of my mentors, Eric Dixon, like always talked about like, and then there's also mental illness. And I think that's a good caveat. Yeah. And, and, and some of the boundaries we use for mental illness can be the same as the boundaries we use for people who are evil, just because this is a person who's dangerous, but they're as dangerous to themselves as they are to others. Yes. Yes, of course. Right. It's not just one or the other. And when you say guns and lawyers, like we need the, we need systems that will yeah. protect against that behavior, whatever it is, because there's an element of it that's evil. So Right. Like Whatever it, that looks it's like. almost like the difference between personal boundaries and societal boundaries. Like I need a little more help here. I, I can't sufficiently set a personal boundary. Although maybe, you know, Eric told me a, a story this week. This is not a squirrel, but it's so interesting in this context of boundaries about, I can't remember the name of the guy, but he was, he, he's on YouTube all the time. I bought YouTube with no ads. So Riley didn't have to watch ads for whatever she was bothering her. And now they're both on YouTube all the time. Anyway, I walked in his office and he was watching a little clip called The Town Who Killed Its Bully. Have you heard this story? I can't remember this guy's name. So there was this small town, smallish town, and there was a guy there and he was just evil. Like you're saying, just totally evil. Like he would threaten people. He would, um, you know, menace people. He threatened a deputy and the sheriff told the deputy, you probably should just quit your job. Like we can't protect you from him and he's coming for you. So it's better for you to just quit, get out of his space, whatever. Um, so they, uh, they murder on the Orient Express, this guy, like, do you know that Agatha Christie, mm-hmm. um, where, uh, for people who on the podcast don't know, there was this evil guy and he was on the Orient Express and it turned out like everyone spoiler, turn off the podcast if you've never read it, but everyone killed him. Like they all conspired to kill him. And that's what the town did. They, they just, they conspired and they murdered this guy. And then authorities came in and they're like, any witnesses? Everyone's like, no, we have no idea what happened. Like the whole town was in on it um, because it was the only way to manage him. Like they could not manage him inside the boundaries that they had available, even at the society level. So they just killed him. Wow. I mean, sometimes that's the ultimate boundary, right? Like he was hurting everyone. And when we go to war against somebody like Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler, like that's kind of what we're trying to do, right? We're going to kill the bully. Well, you and I have had multiple conversations about different things over the years where we've said a hundred years ago, even 50 years ago, the men in the community would have just taken, taken out, like taken over dealing with the situation and it would be done. Yeah, but we they, don't handle some things that maybe should be handled like that um, the way we used to. And I don't think we've figured out how to handle those things societally for sure. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it kind of leaves a gap because we're uncomfortable with vigilante justice, but right. there's, there's nothing that's built its space to this point. <laughs> like yeah. you and I know um, at least one person in common that we're actually kind of shocked has never been murdered. Um, 
because of the kinds of things that this person does and the boundary violations that they commit. And because society can't contain this person's damage. Like I'm genuinely shocked that someone hasn't just taken it and be like, you know what? And um, there was a comedian that talked about, um, again, it was less than a hundred years ago that um, he needed killing was a, a affirmative defense to murder in Texas. Like it was in the book, right. like you could yeah. assert, like he needed killing. You still had to prove it, right? You couldn't just say that. You can just shoot someone and say he needed killing. But if you could demonstrate that he needed killing, you would be acquitted. That's <laughs> I'm like, awesome. yeah, that's maybe not terrible. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so that's an extreme. It's just interesting that Eric showed me that just this week. And I can't remember the name of the person. Um, I mean, it came out what they had done, but I don't know if anyone was prosecuted or anything because they all kept their mouths shut murder on the orient express style yeah which they just redid that movie with john malkovich as hercule poirot so if you like that story i highly suggest it It had a lot of famous people in it right okay okay continue so one of the things so i think it's obviously a very complex issue and it obviously gets really challenging as as we play it out in our life. But I think that it makes sense intellectually, the sooner we can end bad relationships, bad business experiences, bad whatever, and act from inside um, that space, like the sooner we can access what things we want to be happening in our life instead. Yes. And I just lied, by the way, about John Malkovich being in that movie. He was not, it was Kenneth Branagh. I don't I think- even know who either of those people are. So I, of course, just glossed right over that. <laughs> and I've never seen the movie. So there you go. He, I think he did play. He played Hercule Poirot in another a, another uh, movie about uh, an, another Agatha Christie. Awesome. All right. Continue. Sorry. I just needed to. I just needed to make that correction into the universe. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Um, so I was thinking I was just alluding to the complexity. So one of the things this week, so I have really, I think, spent a long time, a lot of years being very clear about what I'm up to in the world, what I care about, what I want to be invested in. And I think we've said a couple weeks on the pod, ago on the podcast that I had started kind of a new venture mm-hmm. with a company that pairs female entrepreneurs with virtual assistants, right? which I love because women cannot all do everything in the world themselves and execute everything. But I got about a month into this experience and I was really kind of a little bit torn between do I like, am I quitting? I was, I already have resigned, but do I, am I quitting in the dip or am I, or is this something that just needs to end? And the framework of this book may helped me get really clear on thinking it through like systemically because there's just there's things that are you going should, on systemically with companies. You should talk Go about ahead. you should talk quickly about what quitting in the dip is. You talk about that. I was going to use that as an opportunity to drink my tea. Fine. Um, no, okay. What's his name? Uh, Adam? No. What's his uh, name? Paul Goodwin. Seth Goodwin. Seth Goodwin. That doesn't sound mm-hmm. right. Seth Goodwin. Goodwin. Go yeah. Wrote a book called The Dip, which is that most ventures of any kind of significance you know that require breakthrough or whatever um you go in them and you experience a dip like it's it's almost the law of this stuff like you go in the dip and then you 
come back out and that a lot of people quit in the dip. They think, oh, this is failing. So I'm going to quit right now. And then they just never do the thing or never have the breakthrough, keep coming back to it over and over and again. Um, and so he's written a whole book called The Dip about how to figure out when you're quitting in the dip or whether you're just cutting your losses. So I think what he talked about in the book, The Dip was also useful to you because you realized I'm just cutting my losses. Okay, so continue. Yeah, I think that's exactly. So I, I was thinking that through because I, I never want to quit in the dip because I know that challenge is only going to be in front of me in everything I'm doing until I work through it. And yes, like, God I think that's of, one of the- God lets you repeat your work until you pass. <laughs> right. And those, those lessons that like we resist, plus every entrepreneur, everybody, I mean, most people have had big experiences where they wanted to quit and it was the fact that they pushed through, that they grew, that they evolved something that allowed something else to be possible. And so. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) Everybody about Lynn. Stop criticizing me in public. Just think about our relationship. Just think about all the times you wanted to. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, So in this. Come to my house and eat my raspberries, damn it. (laughs) So when I started, I was confronting, like, I have a skills gap you know, like I'm learning and growing, like, I don't think anybody expects to be fully proficient, anything new within a month. And that's challenging, but I'm also operating in a culture that isn't really in alignment with me in this, the small part of this company's leadership team. So I really, wait, let me say something. What's really interesting about the skills gap that you had is you took on this job partly because you knew you had that skills gap as a way to grow your skill in this, in the area of sales. Oh yeah. I was like, I'm really good at getting people to do stuff, but I never, I've done all kinds of different things around sales, but it was, I've never done anything. It was purely just sales. So I was really, and I love their, I still love the product. I love what they do. So I was like, Hmm, you know, this is maybe a good opportunity to, you know, explore something new. And a friend of mine recruited me and I love her and I valued her opinion. Um, but in the time before she recruited me and where we are now, the leadership team changed quite a bit. And so I think that, um, like, I really thought a lot this week about it's always painful to end something that holds possibility. And I think sometimes we, it's hard to evaluate all the different dynamics going on. But for me, there was like two things that like, I think really knowing where, like what game you're up to, like what you care about winning at in the world really helps inform because I could learn to be excellent at sales, like anywhere, right? Like I could study sales. I could do what, like whatever. But, um, we were talking in the middle of the beginning, top of the week. And you're like, would you take this job if they offered it to you today? And I was like, no, you're like, okay, it's a sunk cost. Yeah. But I thought a lot this week about like, you can't get back the last month of your life. Right. The fallacy of sunk costs is the idea that it, we sometimes keep trying to do something to get back the value of what we've already put into it. Like a house that's a money pit or something like you can't get those costs back. You need to make any investment or whatever you're making. You need to make the decision in the current moment, in the current moment, in the current moment, in the current moment. And so you had a lot of sunk costs, but you just can't take them into account to make this decision. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was just defining think that we get, no, I appreciate it. And I think we get really like the cost that we put in as an investment, right. And our heart and our intention follows that. So that part was really like, that was really helpful. And I think around 
we don't value ending things enough because we don't value failure enough, but we also don't value just keeping the slate clean. So I knew, you know, early on that it was kind of a gamble because I knew about some of these changes, but then I also would never have taken the job if I knew the leadership team that had done the interview process was going to be in place. It was supposed to be like interim. And so I got to sit there and evaluate like where I thrive, what I kind of environment I want to work in and contribute to and what I really want to be up to. And it made it so clear for me that there was only one answer, even though in that moment it was like, eh, because I still hold like all the same opportunity to grow and develop sales. Although I did get much better at sales, just even in the short period of time I I did this. Yeah. You might've got what you came for already. You and I spent a lot of time, not even in your job, working on closing skills. This last few weeks. Yeah. I don't remember any of that. It was a really long. Are you kidding me? Are you joking? Please tell me you're joking. You don't remember the hours that I spent on the phone helping this company and helping you because now I'm annoyed. I remember before we started what we like, what we were working on, but not since I've started on the, like, I remember like setting things up and some of the things we worked on around my interview. Is that what you're talking about? No, we spent hours and hours working on the script and how you could wordsmith it. And what, yeah, what was that this? was all the beginning stuff, like not around closing. That was just dealing. I've never worked off of a script purely like this, but we never well, worked. See, I consider it all closing. Script. It is close, true. It's, you have you to close from the first minute you open your mouth. A hundred percent. And that wasn't, you know, news or any, I mean, the script, I did learn a lot about myself in the process though, because I had never done it before. So it was good. Like I felt like I did get some good things out of it. I don't want anything ever to be a complete loss, but I really thought a lot about like, what's the value of creating an ending right away. And we had kind of a little chat group where I messaged, we have some, some of the girls that we're all, you know, chatty with. And one of them said, you might be the genius among us. Like, and I was like, she, and she just said, I admire that you knew exactly what you were here for. And that, that wasn't what you could be up to. And that you, you called it quits early. She's like, I know I would have just drug it out. And I loved that. Like, I love that perspective of coming to the table. And I wonder, it had me looking at my life, like what things have I felt obligated to? What things are, do I have going on that, you know, could be ended or moved forward? It just had me getting curious about it. Yeah. And for anybody who's never done this process before, which is probably most people, what it really looks like is asking the question that I asked you, would you take this job today? You already have this job, but it's not the job that they offered you. It's changed. So today, would I take this job? Would I get into this relationship today? Would I pursue this opportunity today? And again, being really careful not to quit in the dip. Like if you're having a fight with your husband and you're super pissed, you don't ask yourself like, but I marry this asshole today because that's not what it's about, but it's more in moments of like calm, neutral, where you're looking and, and we looked at what the job was, which wasn't the job you took and said, would you take this job today? And the answer was a very clear. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. If this was the job listing, I would not have taken it. You know, if I went no, on and, and you and I job, talk at nauseum about everything. And we even knew like in the gap between, you know, offer letter, waiting forever for the offer letter, like all those things, like it's now a much riskier proposition, Mm -hmm. but I still was really invested. So it was such a good 
I don't know, when I look at it in the framework of like having the balls to be like, this is nothing to do with how good I am at it. And I got two sales the day I quitted. I quitted. I quit. I, I got two sales the day I quit. <laughs> so I was really clear. Like, I love the idea of not quitting on a bad day. Like, that's one of the philosophies that I don't know. I must have gotten from doTERRA. And yeah, that that's has, a doTERRA thing. And I love that, right? Like, I think it's so important not to quit. Like, quitting on a good note is such a good way to evaluate. And not every job offers the like not every ending offers the possibility of that like I'm in a terrible marriage that needs to end and I'm gonna quit on a good day like there's not always a framework for that but I think when you're looking at evaluating like is this a skills growth is this something in the system that needs to change that I can cause you know like how do I fulfill on what I'm really committed to I think that it's great so I got a good quote from the book are you ready yes always Endings are not only part of life, they're a requirement for living and thriving professionally and personally. Being alive requires that we sometimes kill off things in which we once invested, uproot what we previously nurtured, and tear down what we built for an entire, uh, built for an early, what we built for an earlier time. Yeah. That's so hard though. It really is so hard. And when we look at all our life, and even like things that aren't currently thriving, sometimes it's really hard to evaluate what to do with those things. And I think it gets even harder inside systems where we're going one way and the system's going another way because there's so much social influence and so much kind of status quo going on that I think it's even harder to evaluate. And most people don't call you and go, I'm so proud of you for having the balls to quit and like for being really clear that that wasn't a good fit for you. Although I did get a really bizarrely high amount of feedback um, from like some people that I worked with and some, even some of the leadership that like, not only was this the right thing, but that, you know, the company has to go through the process of paying the cost for this learning curve because they're not learning it just on words. Yeah. Yeah. Foolishness. I mean, there was a lot of foolishness in how they interacted with you, even at the end. Um, yes, for sure. And, and while you were talking about killing things, I was actually thinking about an, an amusing little like microcosm of this, because if we look at our whole life, it happens all the time. Um, this is more just like a cute anecdote, but it, it maybe shows like a lower charged example of this where the stakes are kind of low, which is when, um, when Riley was a baby, um, Eric went through a lot of frustration when in her first few months, because he's an engineer. And so he used to do this thing that I called solving the baby where <laughs> he would like figure out what made her not cry. And, and then he would be super proud. And he's like, okay, I, I have solved this under the problem. How do I make the baby stop crying? I have written the solution. I have etched it in stone. This is the thing I know what to do because I love her. I'm going to do the thing. And then a few months later, it wouldn't work anymore. And he would be so frustrated, not with her, but with like his methodology. Like how oh. I thought I solved the baby and what, why is this not working anymore? What has gone wrong? It's like, nothing's gone wrong. She just doesn't like that anymore. Like when she, she had colic, when she was really small and he used to like walk around the house with her and that would soothe her. And then a few months later, she didn't want to do that because now she was more mobile on her own and she was like more interactive and whatever. And that would just piss her off. And it was so funny. And he would laugh about it too, because he was like, okay, I solved the baby. This is, and can you imagine now she's almost 14. If like she comes home from school upset and he like picked her up and walked her around the house, <laughs> that would yeah. be 
absurd. But even in that like low stakes situation, he had to just destroy everything he knew about her, learn about her again, come up with a new solution and then just, you know, ad infinitum over and over and over. Um, and I think that's what it looks like, but we see it and are willing to do it on something like, oh, she doesn't like baths in the sink anymore. I'll just give her baths in the tub. The stakes are so low, but it's much harder to look and say like, maybe my whole way of how I form friendships or maybe my relationship with my family of origin, like maybe all of that is like a bath in the sink and it just doesn't fit me anymore. Then the stakes are really high and it's much harder to see that that kind of destruction is just as necessary. Yeah, when you think about like also systems or jobs people have had for years or places that, like they said, they've nurtured and maybe even been invested in for a lifetime up to that point. If you're going to head into a lifetime that's different, um, it's good. And then one of the things I've thought a lot about as I was doing, as I've done, you know, coaching with entrepreneurs over time is that a lot of times people have great boundaries in their personal life and they really struggle to bring that into the business world or vice versa. Mm -hmm. It tends to be like that there's like a disconnect in one or the other, but just because it exists in one place doesn't always overlap. Like there seems to be like an approach to the rules that are so different that it starts to get confusing. And I love the clarity that now and brings, you know, no, not now and <laughs> that town's cloud. Thank you. Uh, so I do love Henry now and it must yes. be getting time for Lent. <laughs> Talk about um, the squirrel. Yeah. Um, um, so we should talk about Lent next week. That would be a good one. Anyway, yeah, Lent um, is actually, when does Lent start? It doesn't start till almost April. No, no. Lent starts next month. I think uh, it starts a month before it starts 45 here. I'll look it up for you. Lent 2022. It's, it's really late this year. It, when it starts Wednesday, March 2nd. Oh, okay. So it's and, and it ends on the 14th. Ooh, I'm getting my tattoo on the second day of Lent. I'm very excited. Um, <laughs> All right. Wait, let's but, wrap this up. Go ahead. One more comment, which is like kind of related to this conversation, but maybe cues up a whole other conversation, which is one of the other elements of this, like boundary setting necessary endings inside systems is also sometimes we're playing different games. So one of the things you and I have talked about before that is becoming more and more evident is that companies and employees are often playing very different games. Like a lot of employees, not as many as there used to be, but a lot of employees are still playing under the old paradigm of like, if you're loyal to the company for your whole life, you will retire and get a pension and get a gold watch. Even though that's not true, that hasn't been true for decades. There's a lot of people that still play the game, right? If I show up and I do a good job, they'll take care of me, whatever. And companies have moved on to a new game. Some employees are playing the new game of like, it's more fluid. My career spans multiple companies. But one of the things that sometimes happens in systems is like, there can be a huge mismatch and really difficult to set boundaries if you're playing a different game than the other people. Yes. Like recognizing, you know, what game are they playing? Because you can't set an appropriate boundary with someone who's not playing the same game as you, right? Like if you run out of bounds, um, I'll call it out. It's like, well, dude, I'm playing basketball <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah. and you know, and that's, I see that a lot, um, in a lot of the frustration that's brewing, um, in our economic system and in, in our jobs in, uh, ecosystem. Yeah, no, I think it's really good. 
So, um, like one of the things you even said about this job is I don't want a place that's going to treat me like a commodity. Like they were playing a different game. Like you were playing inside Simon Sinek infinite game where there's something to be developed, something to be achieved. My management is here for me to develop. I'm here to develop their uh, company and they're playing more of a commodity game where you, right. you are only as valuable as for sales that you can give me. And if you don't produce those sales, I'm not going to try to develop you. I'm just going to find another person who will. Um, and you're playing two different games. And so there's no way for you to have an appropriate like structure to work with them because right. you're just not like you're playing baseball and they're playing basketball. And so there's no way to come to an agreement. Yeah, I think it's great. And one, so I think that like what games each person is playing is really important. Like one of the great quotes from the book is, I, I mean, I can't remember it exactly. So I might bastardize it but i he says you can't prune toward anything if you don't know what you want right yeah. so like you have to be really clear what it is you want if you're going to move towards something and then i think that clarity is part of why you were able to leave so quickly yeah for sure it would have been messy were, for me if i wasn't very clear and you were clear on a couple different dimensions right like obviously i want to make this much income like i think this job has the potential for x amount of income this is the skill I want to develop. This is what I want to, this is the result I want to play for. Like you were clear in multiple dimensions. So even in what you've run into, you could have had a consideration of like, okay, I was playing for four things and it looks like I can't get one, but I can get the other three. So I'm going to keep playing. Like you can make that conscious decision. Like, okay, this fourth one is not what I thought it would be. I'm able to put that aside for now because the other three are so important to me. Um, so being super clear in like every dimension of what you're playing for allowed you to make that decision really quickly. And you could have easily made another decision. Like you could have said, well, they're not going to invest me as a person, but I think I can still develop the skill and make the money I want. So I'm going to stay, but I'm going to be responsible for the fact that they're not going to develop me that you could have made the decision from just as much power as the decision to leave. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. I got one more quote and then I think we can wrap. Perfect. Want it? Yes. Um, okay. So there's a difference between helping someone who's disabled, incapable, or otherwise infirm. So right. Same with organizations, etc., versus helping someone who is resisting growing up and taking care of what every adult or child in that matter has to be responsible for herself or himself. When you find yourself in any way paying for someone else's responsibilities, not only are you stuck in a delayed ending, but you're probably harming that person and right Ooh, organization, etc. It's so good. And it is juicy, right? Because yeah. ultimately a company has, there's, it's that we're assumed and as employees are as partnership, like we assume so many responsibilities when I think of your time and your last job that you left like you you showed up the way you wanted the company to show up that's just what we mostly do right in relationships but then when the company wasn't evolving in that same direction that was in alignment for you like you still showed up fully and they didn't really have to experience the cost or impact of that right but it's yeah. so hard when the stakes are so high and your, your quote, and I promise not to go down this rabbit hole, but your quote reminded me of another book called When Helping Hurts, which is all about, about foreign aid. 
and that yeah. um, one of the things rich countries do that harms uh, developing countries is go in in the second kind of situation that you were talking about where there's like something chronic like they said the best place for foreign aid is in a situation where there's been some kind of crisis like um like a war or a, a, a weather event or an earthquake or something like that where they literally can't help themselves because there's been some kind of devastation but that when we as rich countries go into developing countries and like replace the infrastructure that they need to develop we actually do more harm than good um like the classic example is uh, clothing donations um into places that aren't in like clothing donations after a flood is one thing because all of the capacity to produce clothes right all of the existing clothes have been washed away ruined whatever so you come in and you're like yes let us clothe you because there was just a flood in here but if you go into a place and just give a whole bunch of free clothing it destroys any kind of infrastructure or industry that would produce that clothing on a sustainable basis. And then now they're dependent on the in, in infusion of free clothing. Like that's a classic example. So what you, the quote you just said about people also applies like at this systemic level. Right. Yeah. That's great. I feel like we've got the podcast back on track. You're welcome for having a shitty experience that we could talk about. I know. Imagine, <laughs> and you know, one of these days, so I do the podcast looking right out at where I plan to put all the crow food and water. Oh, so it's no. very possible <laughs> someday a crow friend will come while we're in the ladies room and it will be just like a seminal moment. I'm going to bring fat baby to visit and sit in your window. If you no, ever you get scare away point. my Raven. No, I'll I don't just sit in the window and watch the Raven. That's true. And I don't think you could scare it. The Raven that I'm talking about is as big as the cat, maybe bigger. It's huge huge he's huge all right next week it'll be lent in the ladies room lent in the ladies room and my tattoo the day after so i'll be really super actually i'll be getting my tattoo the day the next ladies room goes live all right fantastic very exciting okay all right. we will see you next time in the ladies room Ta-da. thanks for joining us be sure to subscribe to catch us in the ladies room you can also find Lynn at A Spacious Life on Facebook, Instagram, and in Clubhouse. And find Allie at 5 Billion Entrepreneurs on LinkedIn and Instagram.